Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Hong Kong's eighth consecutive weekend of protests took to, took people into the streets again, and authorities are using more aggressive measures to stem the protests. There was tear gas, riot gear. There are triads now beating up people with sticks in some locations. We're going to talk about what's happening uh, with the protests in Hong Kong with writer Wen Huang, who we talk with uh, frequently on the program. Good to talk with you, Wen. Uh, nice to be here, Jerome. When I wonder if we could go back to the beginning here and just give people a little refresher. This whole thing uh, started with this extradition treaty idea that um, Governor Lamb had. Uh, could you kind of shape, give us a little shape of and reminder of how this thing flowered? Great. The the whole thing started with a murder case. In February, on February 9th last year, a couple from Hong Kong, they traveled to Taiwan, supposedly for vacation. So they stayed in Taiwan for nine days. And nine days later, only the man came back. And the woman disappeared. And then when they looked into that, they realized that the, the man actually, he confessed that he uh, had killed his girlfriend who was pregnant. So he was in jail, but then the Hong Kong government found it hard to charge him with murder because he committed the murder in Taiwan, and there was no extradition treaty between Taiwan and Hong Kong. So because this case caught a lot of attention, and the lawmakers in Hong Kong, they decided to draft a bill called the extradition bill, which will give uh, 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 Hong Kong and Taiwan, you know, the, uh, the, the authorities to, to exchange this information so he could be charged. It's an interesting scenario because I imagine it presented the leaders in Hong Kong. I mean, I guess the protesters think it gave them an excuse to bring this kind of thing forward, right. an idea that, that, well, we're just pursuing this murder case. We're, this won't be used against people. Politically, this is not one of those things. It's strictly for this murder case. Right. But the, initially, that was the idea. But then when they were drafting this bill, they also included a provision, which means that they would establish uh, this reciprocity with mainland China, which means the extradition bill will allow any suspects in Taiwan to be sent back to mainland China. That's the part that really sparked anger among Hong Kong residents. As we know that in 1997, after Hong Kong reverted back to a Chinese rule, and then they established what they called one country, two system, which means that Hong Kong would enjoy high autonomy of a uh, high degree of autonomy. They have their own law and then uh, they um, they have press freedom, whereas in China they don't. But then uh, since 2012, I think with uh, uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping came to power and China was also getting economically powerful. And then they felt like they want to play a prominent role on the international stage. And they also they got tougher in Hong Kong because uh, a couple of things they first they, um, they tried to ratify the law, tried to change the the um, the, the election system. Remember, we talked about the umbrella movement. Right. That people wanted suffrage, like universal uh, suffrage, or they want to vote their, their governor directly. Right now, it's um, selected from 1,200 business, the elite 
they feel like they don't actually represent people. So people had the movement. And then uh, China started, they felt like Hong Kong has become the breeding ground for dissenting, for dissidents and dissenting views. So they started to crack down on the media. And the most fam- uh, famous case was this. they abducted, the, abducted these people from Hong Kong who run bookstores that uh, sold a lot of the uh, gossip books about the the girlfriends of the Chinese president or all these different things about the challenges com- communist rule. So they really toughened uh, the the press law and all that stuff. And also a couple of times uh, they abducted the business people. As you know, a lot of the wealthy business people in mainland China, when they didn't trust the government there, they tried to move the asset abroad. And a lot of them, they moved the assets to Hong Kong. And then some of the corrupt elements in China, they take advantage, uh, take advantage of the system, and then they all move to Hong Kong. And China, when they uh, launched the anti-corruption campaign, and then they just send people to Hong Kong, abduct these people. Now even dissidents who want to enter Hong Kong, they got kicked out. All this have contributed to the fear in Hong Kong. They feel like their freedom is being eroded. And this, you're describing a situation that is one of uh, kind of like humiliation. Uh, it when people get humiliated and feel like their rights are being taken away slowly but surely they they this is what happens it the, the something that can seem like a little issue becomes a big issue right it's the this whole accumulation exactly the accumulation because uh, in 1997 when hong kong was reverting back to china's rule people think hong kong was so powerful it was going to influence mainland china and then you know the gdp of hong kong it was supposed to be like 20% or 27% of the overall chinese economy but during the past 28 years or so and china's economy is taking off and now hong kong is only taking uh, like 3% of the overall Chinese economy. And the middle of China, they felt like, you know, we have Shanghai now. Hong Kong is getting less and less important. And they become more and more arrogant and they toughen the control of Hong Kong. And the Hong Kongers, they felt a little bit humiliated. They feel like who is deciding the, the fate of Hong Kong now is Beijing. And all the, the, the governors of Hong Kong, they become very hand-packed. And all this, I think, is the anger that sparked the whole protest. Even though the extradition bill, if you look at it, it was relating to murder case. But the more people realize that if, uh, in the future, they can just send anybody back to mainland China. So this is the fear that uh, people feel, especially the middle class. They, f- they don't feel the security in Hong Kong anymore. The freedom, that's how a lot of the people, this, the, 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 the part of this protest is in addition to students during the umbrella movement. Right now, a lot of the middle class people, they participated. And some of the business people, they, they actually supported from behind. They, they don't show up. But so people, they go to work on Monday and Fridays. And during the weekend, they put on the black ma- mask and put on the black T-shirt and then start to go on the street and protest. I'm talking with writer Wen Huang, and we're discussing Hong Kong. It was the eighth consecutive weekend of protests in Hong Kong last weekend, and we had more aggressive uh, tactics out there in the streets, lots of tear gas. 
Uh, you know, I wanted to ask you about where you think the one country, two systems uh, idea is. A couple of years ago, um, the Beijing government came out and called it a historical relic and seemed to really flex its muscles on the one country, two systems. But, you know, in, in the statement from China's top officer of Hong Kong affairs today, they they said, whoa, you know, we're, it's going to be fine. The two systems are fine. We're, we've, you know, Hong Kong's governor is going to take care of this whole thing. And, you know, strangely, during the protests, there's people out there with uh, British flags and things uh, it, it kind of making a point. Uh, it's where do you think things stand? I think it marks a turning point. In 1997, I was in Hong Kong. I covered part of the, the pre-turnover. And in those days, you hardly... I hardly heard anybody talking about Hong Kong become independence. They were eager to uh, to move away from British rule because also the Chinese government in those days, they were too busy with the domestic affairs. They actually, during the first couple of years, they allowed Hong Kong to operate on their own. It was basically uh, non-interference, right? And then just during the since 2012, and that part of one country, two systems start to to the the line started to blur and the mainland China excuse me mainland China started to control more and more of Hong Kong and also this time each time uh, like the the protests one of the movements when the Hong Kong government governor she came out she could say we're going to withdraw this bill completely but she couldn't because mainland China one of the leaders already said that we are taking a temporary break. And then when uh, the tension started, we want to defuse the tension, this could come up again. So when the, the leader expressed the view, the government of Hong Kong couldn't even say, we're going to withdraw it completely. It just said it died right now. So this could show that uh, the Beijing government is behind all the decisions of Hong Kong. That what makes people nervous. And also I think 50 years of rule. This is the young people, most of the people on the street. They were born after 1997. And these are the people, they, they get worried that uh, after 50 years, they were just going to be like the rest part of China. So that's what uh, makes it harder. More flag symbolism. I talked about the British flag a minute ago. Right. But the uh, I noticed that in Hong Kong, they flew flags at half-staff for Li Peng, right. the, the, the prime, minister. prime minister during... Uh, Tiananmen Square. Square. He, he was the guy who did the Tiananmen Square crackdown, and that sends a pretty heavy message. They were trying to because Li Peng was the one during Tiananmen Square. It's a similar situation that uh, uh, I was in Beijing in April when they started the Tiananmen Square, and then the top leadership, they divided because some of the hardliners want to crack down, the, the, the reformers wanted to take advantage of the students' movement, and then there was kind of a, a couple months of inaction. They didn't know what to do, and the students' movement just started to spread. But now in Hong Kong, it's the same way that uh, Beijing, the the top leadership, they are divided over how to handle Hong Kong. Somebody said, just leave as it is, let it sit out. And the other part, they want to, the military, they want to, uh, they want to crack down. So because of this, and then they they try to send a message. I think the hardliners use Li Peng saying that uh, he just died a couple of days ago. They use this as a message that we could crack down. But you know, it's uh, wait a minute. It also on Sunday, Carrie Lam was at a. People's Liberation Army summer camp barracks in Hong Kong at a graduation ceremony. It's all sending the signal of tough, uh, you know, being tough. And also last night at three o'clock in the afternoon, two o'clock here, the government of 
Beijing, the Macau and the Hong Kong office, the policy making of mainland China, they issued a very tough stance. But I doubt that they are going to use force, use the military to crack down on that right away. Uh, but it is very uh, a dangerous situation. But the harder part with any of the people, any people who are dealing with Hong Kong is that it's different from the uh, Tiananmen Square movement. Because with any street protest, you always find a leader. And you have organized uh, organization or the body to lead the whole organization. But with Hong Kong, they don't know who to deal with. This whole movement has become so decentralized. And um, people, they don't have none of the political parties, the 50 uh, political parties in Hong Kong, they were deeply involved, even though one, they play, uh, played a prominent role, but they don't have a decisive say. And people just organize themselves on the internet through different uh, groups, the chat groups and different messages. So uh, that's why uh, the government find it hard to deal with it because one group has this uh, demand saying they want uh, the resignation of the governor. The others, they want freedom. They want The other ones want universal voting rights. So uh, there's no centralized group they can deal with. And also during the weekend, and they don't know where these protesters are going to prop up because uh, some groups, they, they think that it's great to go to the airport to yeah. educate the uh, mainland tourists who are arriving in Hong Kong. Somebody said that they wanted to, to go to the train station. So every weekend is a different uh, issue and different groups, they have their different agenda. And then they, they don't listen to one uniform voices. That's why the, the, the central government in Beijing and also the, the government of Hong Kong, they are taking a wait-and-see attitude. They keep sending out uh, signals, but they don't know what to do. What can you do? You cannot, if you crack down this one group, the other group uh, crops up in some, somewhere else. So the only thing they could do is declare martial law. But if you declare martial law, you have tanks on the streets, and this is sending us such a bad, terrible image you know, to the rest of the world. So I think they are in a dilemma. What do you make of the way they've been cracking down here with the tear gas? And I, you can watch the amazing Twitter videos of how the protesters are putting out tear gas canisters with orange cones and buckets of water, and they're throwing them back. And they've, they've, they're adapting tactics. And there's a thing going on with the the use of more force. These, these guys with wielding sticks, beating people in uh, not in downtown Hong Kong, but then further out, closer to the border. But um, these tactics, it's it looks bad. It looks like uh, this is the answer is like more threats of 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 violence and from state violence and then more uh, more more of these crackdowns in the street. Because the, the, the police force initially, I think they, they've been charged with excessive force, but I think they received instructions from uh, Beijing that if you can't use the soldiers, the Chinese Liberation Army to come in and the police, you have to be tough on the protesters. I noticed that the tear gas they use is, is becoming more poisonous. I, I saw the people in the protesters, they, they really coughed up. And then some, somebody told me that uh, it was even more serious than a few days before. And also they use a, a, a very unique uh, trick that they hired those, those local tribe members. You know, in Hong Kong, there were 
hundreds of localized triad members or mafia members. They're not like Godfather, the mafia. They're so powerful. But they are very localized. And then each little villages or the streets, they have these members of the mafia. These They were trained from the when they were young, and then they belong to this brotherhood. And then they normally take money and to help whatever side. And then during the, the protest movement and at the train station, suddenly these people wearing white shirts and beating up the protest who were returning at the train station. And then the police arrived 40 minutes late because they felt like these could have been supported by the Chinese government. They didn't want to interfere. And then they came in 40 minutes late, did some symbolic move. And this actually had kind of a, a backlash. But there, there was one thing that needs to uh, interesting anecdote about these tribe members. And during 1989, during the protest movement, if you notice that a lot of the uh, students' leaders, the Chinese students' leaders, they escaped China successfully, and then they end up in the West. This is because the tribe members of Hong Kong. And a lot of the the uh, pro-democracy activists, they raise a lot of money. So they give some money to the tribe members. So these are the people who smuggled the protest leaders to Hong Kong. And then from Hong Kong, they managed to get to the West. Now these tribe members taking money from other, the pro- Beijing forces, and then they are beating up the protesters. So it's getting more and more chaotic, and because of the lack of organization, because of the decentralized nature of the protest, it is very, very hard to 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 handle. I think right now everybody, probably the, the government of Hong Kong, they don't want to make any more concessions because if they make one concession, the other group says, no, it's not enough. There are more protests. So they are kind of waiting out to see how the protests will die down. Well, with the decentralized nature of this, is it a worry to you that the protesters would get too violent too, that there would be sections of protesters who, I mean, they're getting very sophisticated in their responses here and they're lighting up, lighting fires in the streets and there's they're figuring out how to put out canisters and throw them back and people are throwing bricks. Um, is there the, pro, the the issue that certain sectors of the protesters are going to escalate and things will get out of hand? I think so. It's already getting radicalized because like I said, in 1997, when I covered Hong Kong, nobody's talking about independence. And then they hated the Brits. Now they feel so nostalgic about the British rule. They, they raised some, raised the British uh, flags. And also, from the umbrella movement all the way till the beginning of this movement, people use the word saying uh, peaceful, rational um, protests. And now that voice has been drawn out as people use more and more, use force and use different uh, guerrilla tactics to in all parts of the city. So when this is getting too radicalized and too violent, I think this is going to lead to a, a an armed confrontation or something that the, the the Chinese soldiers have to come in. But right now, a lot of people are ruling out this possibility. I'm talking with writer Wen Huang, and we're discussing the protests in Hong Kong now in their eighth consecutive weekend. We'll be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and we're talking about Hong Kong. It had the eighth consecutive weekend of protests this weekend, and there's more aggressive tactics being used. I'm talking with writer Wen Huang about what's going on, and I wanted to bring up what the United States is doing. Uh, China has been saying um, that uh, the U.S. is a black hand in stoking violence in Hong Kong. And uh, the State Department has expressed grave concern, but they don't seem to really be talking it up in, as, as you could. Um, what, what, what do you make of what the U.S. position is here and how, how China is reacting? I think that uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce or the responses or including some of the resolutions introduced by U.S. congressmen, that's supposed to, be, to offer some moral support. But uh, I don't think it uh, – does anything right now, like uh, with any other Chinese protest, including in 1989, China immediately blamed the external forces, the hostile forces abroad, like they actually singled out the United States. I think Britain should be more concerned because the, 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 the close connection with Hong Kong, but they singled out the United States because the current uh, tension between U.S. and China, they call the U.S. Uh, uh, the black hands. You should... Uh, withdraw right away because China feels uh, that uh, Hong Kong, uh, you know, is part of China. They have their sovereignty cannot be challenged. That's the uh, the Chinese spokesperson last night, our time, and made it very clear three bottom lines. First one, that uh, any foreign countries, they cannot interfere and then challenge China's uh, sovereignty over Hong Kong. And uh, Secondly, they cannot challenge the central authority of Beijing. Uh, that's you know it's 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 one of the the things. The the third part is uh, the the uh, they, they 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 cannot uh, allow Hong Kong to infiltrate the whole movement spread to the the rest part of mainland China. So that's the three parts they worried about. And the the top concern is the independence of Hong Kong. They worried that uh, with the support of the United States or Great Britain and uh, the radical elements will start to become more and more uh, you know, violent. You know, during the Obama administration, when there was an uprising in Iran, uh, they tried to play it pretty cool and not give the Iranian government a chance to, you know, say that there's a lot of legitimate uh, reasons why the U.S. is stoking this up. I mean, is is this the same situation, or are we in a different situation where we have, you know, what a lot of people say is a great power rivalry going on, and we should be standing up for our system? Um, there is uh, people on the left and on the right who seem to think that. Uh, I noticed Simon Tisdall in The Guardian the other day talked about this being the fight for democracy in Hong Kong is the defining struggle of our age. And Steve Bannon and Islamophobe Frank Gaffney are, are kind of putting together a thing where they are saying, you know, this is the defining struggle of our times and we are going to, uh, you know, there's two systems at work here. One's going to win. Is is, should we be approaching Hong Kong with that kind of mentality? I think we, they, it's a double sword when you played hard on uh, the, the whole thing. You give China the power because you really, the United States, uh, a lot of the businesses, you have so much asset over there locked in Hong Kong. Of course, you try to protect the economic interests. But most of the times when the U.S. go in there and it, because it's internal politics, domestic politics, they try to 
when they have to negotiate certain deals with mainland China, they abandon Hong Kong, abandon other others. So you leave the people of Hong Kong as it is, and then they get more and more uh, clobbered by the mainland government. I just don't think the United States right now, you have any credibility, especially within our country ourselves, the, the whole two-party system, everything is going through f- so authoritarian. So I just don't think like uh, they have too much credibility to play there. And then, uh, But I think it is important to, mor- uh, to offer uh, more support. But I just don't see they're going to work on it. Should the British be offering more rhetoric and moral support? They should have done more a long time ago. But they, because of the whole business interests, and then they worried about mainland China, and they allowed mainland China to erode more and more of the freedom there. I think it, at this stage, it's almost like the British, they're... they're the small group of people, they, they still feel allegiance to Britain. But there isn't too much they can do over there too, except to offer some strong verbiage like the the uh, uh, British Foreign Secretary or uh, Jeremy Hunt. He was he was becoming really really tough. But the the, the second after he issued the, the 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 statement, the Chinese government immediately said that uh, uh, just say please stay out of the if you want to win your election, please keep Hong Kong out of your your rhetoric. And then it didn't really play too much in Hong Kong. Right now it's the. Uh, I think right now it's between Hong Kong and the, the, the mainland government and the, how this movement is going. It's really hard for anybody to pr- predict what is going to happen because once the violence escalates and then once all the protests getting so radicalized and uh, how is the mainland government is going to deal with that. And if the, I think if they do use force and excessive force, to crack down, the international community could do something to isolate China. But China is very, very careful at the moment. Well, we've got about 20 Democratic presidential candidates. If somebody was trying to get a little attention and uh, show themselves as a foreign policy person who had real strong moral credentials, would they pick up the banner for the protesters in Hong Kong and uh, try to just ram it down Beijing's throat? I, I think that right now there is, uh, apart from your tough rhetoric, there is nothing you can do except you have to put a lot of pressure on mainland government to make concessions. But the, we don't have a lot of the mechanism. Right now, the, so U.S.-China, the trade war is embroiled in this, in this logjam, whatever, and then they are not getting anywhere. And then China is getting really tougher and tougher. And uh, I just don't think... Uh, any international pressure is going to work right now. So that's probably the depressing part of it. Now, the trade talks are taking up again tomorrow. And uh, you were optimistic that they would get a deal done uh, when we last talked. And it does not seem like they are really getting any closer. And the the Chinese side seems to be really digging in that – they are not going to change our system, and we are not going to do this deal uh, if if push comes to shove. I think like uh, uh, we actually get to the point that uh, uh, 
both China and the United States, they kind of give up on each other. Because uh, previously, I just thought that because China was in a, such a rush to reach a deal because of the the pressing economic situation, it's uh, the whole trade war has such a devastating impact on its GDP. But then they were on the verge of reaching a deal. Suddenly, uh, Trump changed the whole dynamic, saying that China was getting too... Uh, too much out of the deal and then broke up. And then China realized that the Donald Trump is really very hard to deal with. He's so unpredictable. The the best part of it is that they should wait out. And then Xi Jinping, uh, after the trade deal broke, uh, you know, when the, 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 the whole talks break up, and then Xi Jinping called on the nation to read some of Chairman Mao's works. One of them is How to Launch a Protracted War Against Imperialists that he wrote in the 1940s. They were really getting ready for a long protracted war. I think a lot of people right now, they're waiting to for Trump to lose the election, and then they could deal with somebody new. At least somebody will be more consistent. That's also Trump is playing up this part saying that you have to elect me. If they don't, there won't be a deal. So that's the, the situation now. Well, uh, that, that, I mean, is that a, a doesn't sound like a great strategy uh, for anybody. I mean, everybody is going to come out of this a loser uh, in the end. Right now, people, uh, you know, who have investments in China, they're saying, oh, my gosh, these are going down for no reason other than this trade war. There's people who are looking for Chinese investments in this country to, to see uh, economic investment in this country from China, and it's slowed to almost nothing. There's there's uh, there's going to be pain. I think the the trade war changed some of the basic mentality. I think before during the Obama years, and every, each time people uh, brought up the international uh, intellectual property rights or these trade uh, conflicts with China, people always worried that uh, if uh, the trade war starts, the bilateral trade war starts, uh, start, and then both sides are going to be clobbered or they're going to be hurt badly. But this time, and I think the Trump administration, when they start the trade war, all the tariffs went into effect. They realized a lot of the, the American the hawks, they realized that here that uh, China was actually one who suffered more. And uh, so they felt like they could actually go ahead with it. And then the U.S. economy, even though a lot of the business, businesses of American farmers are complaining, but right now it doesn't look like the U.S. economy is greatly affected. But China right now, right now they're facing tremendous economic challenges. So people say, well, we can actually afford this trade war. I think that changed the mentality of the American hawks in the, the foreign policy Hawks, they, for years and years, they wanted to be tough on China, but now they want to stick with it. And then the China part, they felt like for years they, they, um, they, relied, they felt like they have relied so much on U.S. technology, the components, the parts. So they wanted to build up their own ecosystem. They could be more and more independent. And then to do this, they have to tighten their belts to tight through the whole thing. Well, it's one of the advantages that China has that a lot of countries don't seem to want to back Donald Trump's trade war against China. No, nobody else wants to stick their neck out, whether it's Australia or or Hungary and Europe, uh, people who might be likely candidates. They all still want Chinese investment. They don't want to jeopardize their relationship. They're willing to let the U.S. go it alone on this. Uh, is that a 
a disadvantage for the U.S.? Is that something that's working to um, China's advantage? And, and they, they, they've got a chance to make allies. The U.S. has given up all its trade allies against uh, China. They, 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 they dropped their trade system and uh, now we're going it alone. I think like I mentioned this before, like uh, unlike the Cold War um, uh, with the Soviet Union or the former Soviet Union, it was like uh, it was a purely political ideological war. But right now with China, uh, it is hard to, to launch an all-out war because all of allies, not only even though they're ideologically opposed to, to China, but they have all these intricate economic uh, relations with, with China, which they don't want to lose. For example, use Huawei as an example. When the U.S. clearly saying that uh, Huawei poses a national security threat, but like our closest allies, Britain, they immediately thought, you know, uh, they have a the different perspective. They think if we could do something to control those, uh, there are some of the risks to be controlled, we could still use Huawei's the 5G network. And other European countries like Italy, they need money from China, the investment, they just uh, actually embrace China. So I think that uh, right now it's, it's, it is very, very hard to go out all out. But the other part of the Europe, I noticed that uh, they actually wishing that uh, U.S. could go tougher on China. And then once the deal is signed, when the U.S., uh, when China uh, makes concession to the U.S. and Europe is going in saying, if you give the concession to the U.S., we want the similar concessions. It's almost like in the 1900 when Britain opened China's door and the United States, Russia, all these Western powers, they went in and then they got all what they wanted. But they right now, they don't want to jump into the, the trade war with China, but they're waiting. Like uh, uh, last time when we talked, we thought it was on the verge of signing a deal and Europe immediately started to get tough. They want similar concessions. So this is the dynamics of the, the current trade war. Well, China knows this, and that's why they're, they're settling in for a long haul, for this uh, long march of, uh, of, of resistance. Exactly. And then because once they uh, also on the uh, right before the, the trade deal was signed, and then there were some the, the, the tougher, the hardliners in China, just like here, the, the tough liners right now, they're winning. They call this a colonial repeat because they said, if we sign this, this deal with China, change our laws to protect intellectual property, to allow these financial companies to come in and ruin our business. It is the same as in the, the colonial period in 19, 1840 when we lost the war to Britain during the Opium War. And then we opened the door to a host of these uh, Western imperial they came up and then uh, divided up China. So we cannot allow this to happen. That's why they, they, they are trying to influence President Xi to take a tougher stance. Has Donald Trump really just changed our relationship with China permanently? Uh, completely. I don't think that uh, whoever is coming to power, China and the U.S. is going to change, resume to what it used to be. And also China, I think that they used to pin on this uh, Democratic candidates or a president to to restore the former relations, but right now, as you can tell, that's all the because the Donald Trump is so tougher, and then you order to win the electoral votes, and then the Democratic candidates they are getting each one try to be tougher, like Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden. They don't even think Trump is tough enough. Like Joe Biden used to be a great ally of China because that 
he considered himself a personal friend of President Xi Jinping because when he was the vice president who was visiting China, he was the one who entertained him, who hosted him. And also he was the one when there was the biggest political scandal broke out in China. Someone was trying to challenge the rule of President Xi Jinping. You know, the police chief who... Uh, uh, running to the American embassy and gave a lot of the information. And it was said that pres- uh, Vice President Joe Biden was the one who passed on the information to President ah. Xi. So they had this close contact. But now uh, Biden just came out and with a tougher stance on China because I, I think that uh, China, if they want to wait till the election's over, but I think uh, they're going to face a tough battle ahead, no matter who is going to be in power. Thanks for joining us, Wen Huang. He's a writer. He's the author of the books The Little Red Guard and A Death in the Lucky Holiday Hotel. Thanks for joining us and talking about the United States and China and Hong Kong. Uh, thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll have Monica Ng and her Food Monday segment, and we'll talk with her. We'll hear from her. She she took part in our bus tour a few weeks ago, and she went to a beautiful uh, urban farm, and we're going to find out all about it after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time again for Food Mondays with Worldview's food and sustainable sustainability contributor, Monica Eng. And Monica hopped on the Amtrak a couple of weeks ago to join us midway through our Worldview bus tour and when we made it to Detroit. And one of the things we noticed right away in Detroit was how the city is having an urban gardening revolution. And a place that we especially liked was the award-winning Peace Tree Parks. Let's join Monica for a tour. Thanks, Jerome. When my train pulled into Detroit earlier this month, it was already like 7.30 at night, but the air was still hot and steamy. Worldview senior producer Steve Bynum picked me up at the station and the Worldview touring bus, and he told me that the rest of the crew was making dinner back at the rental house. They were using the pizza bread, wild rice, salmon, and Middle Eastern pastries from their broadcast in Dearborn, Michigan earlier in the day. It sounded great, but I asked Steve if we could just make one quick detour on the way back to the house. I asked if we could visit a unique urban farm in the city's Corktown neighborhood. When we got there, we saw vast empty lots and abandoned homes. But then there, in the fading light of the summer day, we saw Eric Andrews. The mechanical engineer was wearing a straw hat and wiping his brow. Hi. And even though I was late, he was super nice. Nice to meet you. Monica, nice to meet you. Hey, sorry, I'm sweaty. Oh, it's all right. I asked him to tell me about this award-winning garden we were standing in called Peace Tree Park. Wow. So do you come out here every night? Not every night. At least like three, four times a week and... And then every Saturday and Sunday, for sure, in the mornings. And we host volunteer uh, events monthly, where we pretty much get people from the neighborhood to come out and to help us take care of the garden. Even though there are about 1,500 community gardens in Detroit, this is one of the few that's African-American owned and operated. I asked him to tell me about how it all got started. Saturday in 2015, me and three of my friends from college, uh, all from Detroit, wanted to come home, wanted to have some ownership, and wanted to create a business. 
um, we linked up with the Detroit Land Bank and we started a nonprofit organization to purchase land from them and to do urban gardening. So this was our first location and we've been expanding since uh, 2015 here. We also have a residential garden program that we started in 2015 as well. And since then, we've put up to 50 gardens uh, throughout residents' homes in Metro Detroit. So that's growing as well. So tell me, how does it work? I understand that people will be able to have this produce for free. Yep, yep. The produce is all free of charge. Uh, Everything that we harvest, uh, we pretty much take door to door. If we don't process it, like we process our own peppers, we jar them. We process our own seasons, make our own Italian seasoning. And we pretty much go door to door to these houses and these homes back here and ask anyone if they want anything. And we hand it out free of charge. Everything else we take to the mission right here on 3rd Street, uh, the Detroit Rescue Mission, and donate it to the homeless. That's pretty much our mission. It's just to encourage people to eat healthier. Just off of us having a garden here, our, one of our main goals is just to demonstrate that you can even farm here in Detroit, that you can grow certain things that we're even, we're even growing. So we grow a variety of things just to demonstrate to the community that it's possible to do that. And we've probably encouraged up to three to four people on this block right here to even start their own gardens. Can you take me on a tour? Yeah, yeah, come on. We can start from the front. We proceed to walk through neat rows and sections of the garden, some with raised bed boxes, others that are more like row crops. There's a zucchini section, a pumpkin patch, a melon patch, and a celery and kale area. Look at these gorgeous tomatoes. Yeah, no, we have to prune them. We're partnered with Wayne State University. We got some teens from the Detroit Public Schools working. They just started Monday, so one of the next things they're going to do is probably prune the tomatoes for us. Why is it important to prune them? Uh, so that you can, so that all the energy and nutrients can go to the fruits and not the leaves. So too many leaves, you know, your, your fruits won't finish. And we've had that problem in the past where our tomatoes won't finish. You get a uh, blossom and rot where your tomato, it, it'll get pretty much full and red. Then at the bottom, it'll, it'll just rot. And then you just lose your whole, your whole batch. So that happened to me so many times. Now I know what I have to do. Take off some of those useless yeah. stems. Cause you think like, oh, it's growing beautiful. It looks big and beautiful. You let it grow. Nope. You got to cut those useless stems off. And so all the nutrients can go to the fruits. Well, thank you. All right. What, what do we have first? Okay, so this is the front. We have a couple of fruit trees and uh, berry bushes. Uh, they didn't do so well over here because the soil here is not doing so good. We got a bindweed problem. If you can see on this tree, the bindweed pretty much grows up, uh, grows up our crops oh, boy. and chokes everything out. So this wow. whole bed got choked out by bindweed. But we have a couple of fruit trees that we're trying to grow, raspberries and a nectarine tree and apple tree. We have two sunflower patches here just to grow sunflowers. We don't do anything with the seeds. We were thinking about it, like just starting to package the seeds, but this is our second year growing them, so we'll see how it goes for us. These two plots right here were the first two plots that we obtained, so we started our majority of our farming over here in uh, five little small boxes, and now we've grown to experiment in rows to convert to more of a farming style. So over there, we still have our farming boxes, and that's where we have our tomatoes and our bell peppers. And then over here in our rows, we have our zucchini and our squash, and we can also move forward. Yeah, the zucchini is starting to pop. Well, this is squash, so the squashes are starting to starting to come on. And we do everything organic, so we don't use any pesticides, any fertilizers, or anything. We rely just on on rainwater and just our soil. And we do things like an Epsom salt and those type of things. Just all natural, though. Why was that important to you? Oh, because one of the things that I watched when I came out of school was like, what the health and a couple of documentaries. And I, uh, I got some knowledge about Dr. Sebi and just started to understand about how the food is processed and genetic engineering. I'm an engineer by trade. So I kind of understood what genetic engineering was and how they was modifying the DNA of the crops and certain things that your body can process versus others. And 
My mom had some health issues that kind of led me down this path of research, but, and it's also, you got to feed your body things that are living. So that was kind of one of our missions here is to, the things that, that your body can process. So we grow things that your body can use. Uh, we don't grow anything like iceberg lettuce or anything like that. We Mostly water. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we, we try to grow things that your body can actually process. We got melons and things like that to show people that, you know, it's possible to do here in Detroit. And you got like a zillion boxes over here. Yep, so yeah, let's go over here. So this year, um, so we purchased these next two lots uh, last fall, and we uh, partnered with General Motors, and they donated us 60 of these containers here. These are uh, recycled shipping containers that they use at their plants. So uh, two weeks ago, we planted these cucumbers here. We pretty much pulled up all of our cold crops, all of our mustard greens and cabbage and everything. We pulled all of, all of it up. It didn't do too well this year because, yeah. It what was, a weird spring. It was a weird spring. So it didn't do too well. It was real soggy and everything, a lot of, a lot of bugs. So we just planted these cucumbers. We're, this is our first year growing cucumbers. This location is going to be focused on processing, um, like, pickling. So pickling peppers and pickling cucumbers. So we're going to see how the cucumbers do for us. In the past, peppers did amazing for us. So yeah. we could take a tour. This whole row is pretty much all cucumbers. Okay. And then uh, back here we have some scallions that we're growing for the first time this year. Uh, this is jalapenos. So jalapenos, they do amazing for us. So that's, <laughs> that's not a problem at all some basil so they're going to prune the basil so we can get rid of the flour so it can it can yeah. expand a little bit more so we can process that and make our italian seasoning with it this is kale that uh that they'll probably be pulling up this week it's the end of the season with it uh, i don't think we'll donate it because it's probably rubbery at this point due to the it's 93 today so i'll take some of that you can take some you can help yourself to a whole stalk take it home okay. some more scallions doing pretty good we got some celery in the back. This is our first year growing that as well. The celery is pretty good. Let's, let's yeah. take a look at the celery. Well, Chicago was the celery capital until Kalamazoo took over. Yeah. I did not know that. Kalamazoo. I'm a celery scholar. Oh, uh, yeah. So, yeah, this celery is growing pretty good for us. I've never actually seen it grow, so this was a surprise to me. So we also have bees. We also have a beehive here. Uh, last time I checked, when it was just two boxes, it was 70,000 bees. So it's two more boxes. So I can only estimate it's probably 140, 450 bees in here. We sponsor uh, with Detroit Hives. So we provide all of the, the gardens and everything for their bees to make the honey and everything. And they provide the bees for us to pollinate all of our crops. Okay, so I see um, a watermelon patch over there and a pumpkin patch. Yeah, yeah, we have a watermelon patch over here in the pumpkin patch. This is probably our third year growing both. Uh, last year we had 35 uh, pumpkins that we harvested and set up a stand and passed them out to the community to pass them out to the kids. The watermelons actually got ate by the black squirrels. So Aww. it was probably like 27 of those when we were about to harvest them. We came back, all of them were bit into by the black squirrels. So this year we're going to put some cage around it or something. And you have some future plans for that shipping container just to our left? Yep, yep. So we purchased this shipping container about a month ago, and our plan is to convert it into a solar power resource center. So we're about to purchase our solar system in the next few weeks and install that. And that's going to be the home where we'll process all of our peppers, where we'll ferment those. And we're going to have two hot plate burners where we'll boil the water and ferment the peppers, a dehydrator where we can dry out our peppers, and just plugs and lights and everything where we can have meetings and, and have an area to come out here at. So, so I can stop doing it in my kitchen. I know my wife, she'll, she, she, she's, she's upset every, every fall because I got a living room full of just bags of peppers and bags of basil and stuff that she's like you got to process this stuff get it off my living room so here here we are trying to get this done by the fall 
Fantastic. What kind of engineer are you by day? Uh, I'm a mechanical engineer, so I'm, my title is product engineer. So I, I work on electric axles, so I design electric axles. By day, a mechanical engineer, and by evening, a an urban gardener and nonprofit executive. Yes, correct. <laughs> Many hats at this <laughs> today, I guess. All right, Eric, I know you have a lot of work to do, but um, why was it so important to you to make this food, this healthy food, so accessible and, in fact, free for the community? Also, pretty much because I grew up in this neighborhood. Uh, I grew up on 3rd Street right here. Uh, I know how many grocery stores are in the neighborhood. There's roughly two. I know the produce quality that you get at those grocery stores, and it's not good at all. Uh, even the meat. The meat is not that good quality at all. Uh, Whole Foods just recently came to the neighborhood, uh, maybe maybe six, seven years ago. They're right They're right. actually right up the street, but most people that's from this neighborhood, they can't really afford to go to Whole Foods and do their grocery shopping. So we want to give them our alternative and let them know they can grow some of this stuff right in their backyard to maybe offset some of that cost. All right. Where can people find out more about Peace Tree Park? Uh, www.peacetreeparks, P-E-A-C-E-T-R-E-E-P-A-R-K-S.org. Or we also have an Instagram. It's at Peachtree Parks. Also, we're on Facebook as well at the same thing, at Peachtree Parks. Eric Andrews, thanks so much for talking to us today. Anytime. Feel free to come out and take a look, help yourself to some kale, some celery, whatever you want. Thanks. Anytime. With that, we picked a whole bouquet of kale and a bunch of celery. Then we headed back to the Worldview House, where this Detroit hospitality from Peachtree Park made for one delicious summer salad. For Worldview, I'm Monica Eng. And the salad was delicious. Thank you very much to Peace Tree Park for that fine salad. And thanks to Monica Eng, our Worldview sustainability contributor. We hit so many places on our Worldview bus tour that we couldn't get it all on the air that week that we went a couple weeks ago. So stay tuned this summer for more adventures from Worldview's Great Lakes bus tour. You can keep following the fun on social media at hashtag WVBus. And we have an interactive map that you can click through at wbez.org slash WBez. UV bus as well. Uh, tomorrow on Worldview, we'll be with you again and we'll chat a bit about our national anthem. Hope you can join us tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Van Valentine and Jenny Friedland for helping produce the program. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering today. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.